BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, what would it take for Democrats to win the impeachment fight? To at least have Trump's legitimacy stripped away. I mean, to me, that sends a signal of national popular rebuke. Then we talk about deaths of despair, the growing toll from drugs, alcohol and suicide. There is this clear and pressing drug crisis that needs more policy creativity. And as always, a recommendation to take your mind off of the news. It's just a great feat of epic storytelling. It's been one month since Democrats opened an impeachment inquiry into President Trump, and it's already possible to predict how it's all going to play out. House Democrats will impeach Trump, and Senate Republicans will acquit him. Trump will then claim victory and do what he does best, make hay of all the media attention just as he's running for re-election. But what would it take for Democrats to change this scenario? Can they somehow persuade Senate Republicans to remove Trump? Or can they at least use impeachment to damage his reelection campaign? Michelle and I have both written columns this week arguing that public protest can weaken Trump. To me, the best comparison is the fight over Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Shortly after Trump won election, Obamacare looked doomed. Republicans had the votes to pass a repeal, and then Trump would just sign it. But marches and town hall meetings and other forms of public engagement changed the politics of Obamacare and helped save the law. Michelle, I think we could see something similar with impeachment. So can you spin out what that would look like? Okay, well, I guess let's start with the extreme case, because this is something that I've been kind of holding on to like a life raft for the last three years. Erica Chenoweth, who's a Harvard professor and one of the world's great experts in nonviolent civil conflict, has this figure that any time 3.5% of a population has engaged in sustained public protest and kind of nonviolent civil disobedience against a regime, the regime has fallen. And so to me, that's like the ultimate recourse, even though it might be a little bit fantastical to think that 11 million people are going to really rise up and demand just an end to this. But that's the sort of... um, break glass option for this nightmare. But then on a maybe a more modest um, scenario is, I think, what you said. Um, I used to be more doubtful about the efficacy of protest. And it's true that protesters are often pretty unpopular. But I think that we've seen again and again in this administration when people have risen up, you know, particularly in the first year, that it has been able to certainly change the narrative and in some cases actually change policies or at least forestall the implementation of the most kind of grotesque policies. So there was both the massive rejection of Trump represented by the first Women's March, the people who flocked to the airports when the Muslim ban was enacted, 
and were able, I think, to build support. If you could get enough people to take part or to speak, I think it would make a difference. Yeah, my sense is that protest really plays two roles. It mobilizes and galvanizes and organizes people who've already made up their minds, Trump's opponents. But it also sends this signal to other people that what's happening is really unusual. And Ross, I know you're really skeptical of this. So is your sense that protest doesn't matter or that it's actually damaging to the anti-Trump cause? I mean, probably damaging. And I don't think you guys are wrong that protest has been effective in the Trump era. I just think it's been effective at doing two things, neither of which are really relevant to the challenges for Democrats right now. And the first thing is part of what Michelle was saying. It's mobilization, right? It's sort of convincing people who are shocked and flummoxed by the election result to not despair and get out and um, register people to vote. And, you know, all of these things that sort of create momentum for progressivism in the Democratic Party in the age of Trump. And then they also have an effect, I think, for what you might call the marginal Republican legislator. This is the Obamacare case, right, where if you're trying to persuade two or three or four Republicans in swing states, purple states, that it's not in their best interest to go along with Trump or their party putting people in the streets and demonstrating sort of the popular outrage that Obamacare repeal would conjure up, that's an effective strategy. With impeachment, you need to get a bunch of Republican senators who are not in electoral danger to cast a vote that at some level a lot of them might want to cast but they're afraid of casting because they think it basically torpedoes their political career going forward. But I think if your goal is literally the removal of the president from office, um, well, I have some different ideas on what's effective for that. Okay, so I want to hear those ideas, but let me. I, I actually, I mean, I don't really hold out any hope that you're going to persuade twenty Republicans to vote for impeachment. I think the goal should be to get a majority for impeachment to at least have Trump's legitimacy stripped away. I mean, to me, that sends a signal of national popular rebuke. And, you know, facts might not matter for, say, Lindsey Graham or a Ted Cruz, but, you know, for uh, Senator Burr or Senator Collins, I think that they might be at least a little bit susceptible to mass popular outrage. Um, you remember during Kavanaugh, Jeff Flake at least voted for that one week extension to investigate Christine Blasey Ford's accusations. I don't know that he votes for that extension without those mass protests, including the protesters that confronted him in that elevator. Yeah, I, I could be persuaded that way. I think the risk for... OK, but I, tell me tell me how you, how you think Trump could conceivably be removed. I mean, so one, I think it is, you know, far more likely than not that he is not removed. That said, I think you can see just in the last few weeks that the way he gets removed is that you get a critical mass of Republicans who basically don't want to defend the indefensible. And the moments that have sort of moved the impeachment process along and that Republicans right now sort of conspicuously don't want to talk about are everything from the initial documentation of the phone call when it was released down through Mick Mulvaney's public performance that most people think was disastrous, trying to defend what Trump was doing in Ukraine. In that sense, 
what Democrats are looking for is sort of a sustained version of that, a combination of people who were sort of on the inside who were willing to explicitly break with or critique the president and people like Mulvaney being on the hot seat. If you really are hoping to get to those 20 votes, and I agree it's very unlikely, I think that's much more the plausible dynamic than the sort of in the streets dynamic. And I think in terms of, again, just getting Republicans to turn on the president, it, it really is a sort of inside D.C. game where it's like a collective action problem of this narrow group of Republican lawmakers who are much more likely to feel pressure from inside the D.C. bubble than they are to feel pressure from protests in big cities and blue states. But not just in big cities and blue states, right? Because these protests have also been in their states and in their congressional districts. And so you said before that, you know, there's a growing number of Republicans who don't want to defend Trump on some of these things. Well, one of the ways presumably you could put pressure on them is to make them either defend or kind of try to slink away. So you can protest at their congressional offices. You can try to confront them in other ways and sort of make them make a decision. Am I going to say that it is okay for a president to ask a foreign power to dig up dirt on his electoral opponent or not? Yeah, but I mean, I think if you take the Kavanaugh hearings as an example, I think there's a a feeling among both Democratic and Republican lawmakers that the sort of drama around Kavanaugh maybe helped the Democrats in the aggregate take the House, but also helped hold Republican Senate seats in sort of right-leaning states. I think you're right that if your goal is to move three or four Republican senators into voting for removal, then the sort of confront Jeff Flake model might work. I just don't think there's any way it gets you the other 10 or 15. Ross, Nancy Pelosi likes to quote this line, public sentiment is everything, which is an Abraham Lincoln line. And I guess that's sort of my question to you, which is, I assume you agree that these Republicans aren't going to move unless the polling moves. My question is, how do you think the inside game can plausibly move public opinion? I mean, I think the inside game relies on Trump and people around Trump being sort of feckless and incompetent and having other secrets that could be semi-accidentally revealed. In that sense, the sort of most strenuous thing that Democrats are considering, like trying to figure out ways to enforce their subpoenas rapidly instead of fighting them in court, those seem more plausible to me. Like I, I think your goal get, – getting Rudy Giuliani to testify on the Hill seems to me like a reasonable goal for Democrats. I think versions of what happened with Mulvaney where you put people in the hot seat who are frankly in over their heads, that's how things have sort of gone this far more rapidly than I expected. And you also – I mean I think ultimately you need some other developments. I think – you know, a sense that Trump's foreign policy is crumbling, he's imperiling the economy. All of these things, I think, could contribute to the the larger movement in public opinion that you'd need to get there. But obviously, you can't plan for that or even reasonably root for that. Ross, do you think that protests, I mean, one of the big concerns among a lot of Democrats is that Mitch McConnell is just not going to have a thorough or fair or transparent trial in the Senate. 
I guess I'm curious if you think that, you know, mass protests that raise the profile of these procedural issues and kind of make it clear that there's millions of people watching how this trial is conducted, if you think that that would have any bearing on, you know, making sure that it's not just a kind of quick sham trial meant to exonerate Trump? I mean, I think the trial is going to be quick, (laughs) no matter what. My guess is that by the time you get to the Senate trial itself, things are sort of locked in a little bit and that actually it is this this period that's more important, that sort of once the impeachment vote happens, the public perception will be that, you know, the Senate is just sort of deciding up or down. It's not really conducting its own investigation, which is not quite right, but that's my guess. The news came out this week that the Democrats are going to move a little bit more slowly than they had first planned to do so, in part to hold televised hearings. And that strikes me as the right thing to do and really important. And I think that's vital because I think I do think public protests could move opinion. I don't know that for sure, but that's my gut instincts. That's Michelle's, Ross, you disagree. I'm guessing, though, we all agree that holding public hearings where it's not simply leaks or transcripts of what people are saying, but actually getting people up there in front of cameras to describe what Trump has done is, if anything, more important than the Senate trial that may follow. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I've been sort of baffled by their repeat insistence that they want to get it over with quickly. But you also want to do it comprehensively and you want to present the comprehensive case against Trump. And just in terms of timing, you don't want all of this coming to a head, you know, around Christmas so that it's sort of like rushed before the end of the year and then tied off with a bow before the New Year starts, right? I think you want this to be going on into at least the beginning of the Democratic primary season. Well, it feels like we're in a little bit of a waiting period right now um, while the House continues to conduct these hearings behind closed doors. While the politics of it feel relatively set right now, I could absolutely imagine that they're going to start changing again in a few more weeks. Last week, Michelle, Ross, and I shared some examples of how our opinions have changed over the years, and that seemed to resonate with many of you, so you called in and told us how your opinions have changed. Here are some of the things that you shared with us. Hi, uh, this is Jeff Schnoor from Boynton Beach, Florida. I'm in my 60s now, and over the past decade or so, I've moved from center-left to further-left on some issues. For example, for many years, I've been skeptical of labor unions, uh, seeing them as monopolists in their own right who could sometimes be corrupt. But with the decimation of unions in the past few decades, I believe it's important for government to establish policies that will help bring them back. Hi, my name is Tennessee Molyneux. I'm calling from Port Ewan, New York. And one issue that I think I've come around a little bit to the right on is uh, marijuana. I do think uh, it should stay decriminalized to keep our jail populations down. But on the other hand, I think the directionless failure to launch epidemic is not not helpful for that and maybe shouldn't be glamorized and, and celebrated too much. Hey, this is Roger from Columbia, South Carolina. And what caused me to change my mind on a whole ton of political issues was having a religious conversion experience from secularism to conservative Protestant Christianity. And it left me feeling politically homeless because I used to be 
a liberal, and now I'm a liberal with some conservative social views. But the great gift it's been is that I look back on my old self and my old ideas, and I know that when I have them, I have them sincerely, and that helps me understand other people's views. Really enjoy the show. Keep it up. Thanks to everyone who called, and we would love to hear more from all of you. Leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. You can also email us at arguments at nytimes.com. We'll be back after the break. This podcast is supported by Mercy Corps. From war in Ukraine, to flooding in Pakistan, to earthquakes in Afghanistan, Mercy Corps is delivering urgent humanitarian assistance and long-term solutions to families in crisis around the globe. Visit mercycorps.org donate to learn more and support lasting solutions in over 40 countries. That's mercycorps.org donate to help build a future where everyone can flourish. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Life expectancy in the United States is on the decline, a deeply surprising trend for a modern society. The federal government says that life expectancy has fallen by four months since 2014. What's going on here? The number one reason is an increase in deaths from drugs, alcohol, and suicide, a phenomenon that researchers have called deaths of despair. The most obvious part of the problem are opioid overdoses. Ross, I know that you're deeply troubled by the trend, but that you also think much of the country isn't really thinking about the problem in the right way. So tell us how you think about it. Well, I'm not sure there's a perfect way to think about it. It's a tremendously difficult and tangled social problem. But I wrote a column a few weeks ago basically arguing that the scale of the crisis was not getting the media attention it deserved and that if you compare it both with past crises of mortality, the AIDS epidemic and the crack epidemic, the current crisis looks pretty bad. If deaths of despair had remained at the levels they were at 20 years ago, about 70,000 fewer Americans would have died just in the last year. And then since I wrote the column, one of my many complaints about the democratic debates is that I feel like the candidates aren't really talking about this issue. And then the last debate, possibly because it was in Ohio, we got a bunch of discussion of the opioid epidemic, which was good. But what was striking to me was that so many of the candidates wanted to talk about it in terms of, you know, launching blistering critiques of opioid manufacturers and, you know, the Sackler family and the other drug manufacturers that sort of pushed opioids on patients beyond what the medical literature justified and ignored evidence of addiction. And that argument, I think I, I broadly agree with, but it also doesn't actually reflect what's happening with the, with the crisis right now, which is that we've sort of moved from prescription opioids as the heart of the problem 
to fentanyl and other illegal drugs, often manufactured in China and smuggled into the U.S. through Mexico as the heart of the problem. And so it's almost the problem has sort of mutated in the last few years. And I think Democrats are maybe loath to get too deep into that because it seems to maybe vindicate or validate some of what Donald Trump says about border security or you know conflict with China. But I think even in sort of how we address that specific problem, our politicians haven't even caught up to what the exact nature of the problem is right now. So I, the, the, the one thing that you said that I most disagree with is the idea that Democrats don't want to talk about this because they think it vindicates anything that Donald Trump has said. Because I think that the idea that you can address deaths of despair with border security seems to require a number of really huge leaps. Um, you know, I do agree with you that it is not talked about enough and that it kind of doesn't get the attention it deserves. Perhaps one reason that Democrats haven't been talking about it as much as they might is because I don't think it's clear to anyone what the policy interventions should be. Democrats would probably be well served to just make it clear that they see what's going on, that they understand what's going on. The two people I think who do this are Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. You know, Bernie Sanders, when he has this kind of ethos of solidarity, but Elizabeth Warren at her rallies, you know, she always talks about how what deep trouble this country is in, you know, how deeply broken things are in this country. But again, at a debate, you kind of have to talk about things that you have policies and solutions for. And it just strikes me that nobody has policies and solutions for this. One of the troubling things about where this story has moved is that it's a classic version of fighting the last war. Ross, as you were just saying, that this overprescription was probably the dominant cause of it before, certainly a central cause. But the, the medical system has cracked down on that a lot. And at the same time, it doesn't seem that we're focusing enough on the fentanyl part of the problem and the part of the problem that has now morphed into what really is an illegal drug problem. And so, Michelle, I agree there's a whole set of stuff from this, like stagnant living standards that are really hard to solve, at least in the short run. But then there are also a bunch of short-term things that we clearly could do and don't seem to be doing that well right now. So this is an issue where I've changed my mind or my views have shifted a tiny bit as the nature of the epidemic has shifted. I think if we were having this conversation a couple of years ago, I would be more likely to sort of go into social conservative mode and argue that, yeah, the problems, there's basically this sort of demand for these drugs that reflects changing economic realities, but also changing social cultural realities. And the problem for the Democratic Party in addressing that is that they are a party that is sort of, especially at their progressive vanguard, kind of leaning into the deconstruction of the social and cultural institutions that bind people together and make it less likely that an epidemic like this would take root. Well, Democrats aren't going to concede that, but go on. Right, right. That's sort of the social conservative argument. But hold on just one sec. Which institutions are you thinking of? I mean, I'm basically thinking of families and churches. I still obviously partially believe that. But I, I do think that in fact, there is just a huge supply-side problem here where you have this these sort of technological breakthroughs in making these drugs more addictive that, again, go beyond just the original opioid issue into the development of synthetic drugs and that 
while there may not be a sort of silver bullet, build a wall, Trumpian solution, in fact, you do need some sort of new thinking about disrupting supply chains and making sure that fewer of these drugs make the pilgrimage from China through Mexico into the US. And so there, I guess, I'm a little more of a drug warrior on this, I guess, than I would have been a couple years ago. Can I just, I just want to say something in response to this conservative argument that, you know, liberals have deconstructed these institutions and that it has resulted in, you know, all these people being sort of cast adrift because it seems to blame liberals for something that's happening in conservative communities. I mean, that's a simplification is happening all over the place. But when I think about my neighborhood, which is pretty secular, where the churches have been mostly converted into condos and, you know, there's lots of gay parents at my kid's school. I don't see this kind of social breakdown among the people who practice the values or adopt the values that conservatives say lead to social breakdown. And so I understand that there's an argument that, you know, people in kind of higher economic strata, you know, are cushioned from the consequences of the breakdown of the family, but I just don't see the breakdown of the family where I live. It's not happening. And so I just don't understand the argument, or I guess I just don't buy the argument that it is our values that are causing other people to other people who don't necessarily even share those values that are causing their community bonds to dissolve. And, you know, first you had kind of huge economic dislocation among black people. And then you had all of these social pathologies for which they were demonized. And then you had huge economic dislocation for white people. And basically, the same kind of social pathologies manifested. I mean, society reacted to them differently with, you know, a lot more sympathy and concern than they did when they were talking about, you know, kind of the crack epidemic. But you just sort of see predictable social consequences when the economic foundation of a decent life disappears. Without going too deep into this, I think that, one, I think it's absolutely the case that social conservatives underestimate the effects of economic changes on family and community and these kind of institutions. But I, I think in general, cultural liberals underestimate their power to create the frameworks in which even people who disagree with them live their lives and make their choices. It's challenging. You know, there was a big a big study out the other day on like views of marriage, right? And who who thinks marriage is important and who doesn't? And it's very predictable that, you know, liberals think marriage is much less important and conservatives think marriage is much more important. And those kind of divides, they influence the world that our popular culture creates, that our schools and academic institutions create, all of these sort of commanding heights of culture institutions that people who live around Michelle do have real power over, I think have a big impact. I would be curious to see the numbers, like how the numbers compare. I feel like if if liberals, you know, or if kind of people on the coasts and they're disdain for marriage or they're kind it's of not, 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 not privileging disdain. marriage. Right. It's more that they don't think lifelong heterosexual monogamy is something that's really important and deserves to be sort of centered in our culture in a particular way. Right. But then I guess Wouldn't you, you say that's fair. But I think that those are not necessarily the demographics that are seeing really a lot of divorce or seeing a lot of out of wedlock childbearing. Right. You know, a lot of people have pointed out that 
the upper the liberal upper middle class, you know, actually tends to live quite socially conservative lives. And so if their views were really so undermining of family formation and kind of social bonds, I would think you would see it show up more in the communities of the people who are most likely to espouse those views. I think if you break it down by ideology, conservatives and Republicans are more likely to be married and more likely to stay married. But we've anyway, we've wandered. But see, we've gotten back into the culture war debate. But what about stopping fentanyl trafficking? I mean, to me, there are two sets of issues here, Ross. And I think this is your point. So which is there are a whole bunch of really thorny debates here, right, about the role of family um, that it's going to be very hard to resolve anytime soon. But then there are a bunch of things we could do, like cracking down on fentanyl, that really probably in the meantime could have a significant effect on the number of deaths of despair. And uh, as a society, we should be doing that stuff. It's not particularly liberal or conservative, uh, and it really could have an impact on people's lives. Yeah, and I think the thing that's most persuasive, there may be this broader miasma of despair that is linked to things like rising suicide rates and sort of unhappiness in middle age and so on. And that zone is clearly where you're going to get into these cultural arguments that don't have any kind of perfect resolution. But there is this clear and pressing drug crisis that needs more policy creativity. And it's also about health care, right? There's an undersupply of spots and rehabilitation programs and people can't afford them. Yeah, there's a way in which this problem is a microcosm of the American healthcare system's great problem, which is if it's about a medical procedure or a pill, we do way too much of it. And if it's about human-to-human interaction, things like counseling, we don't do enough of it. And that first instinct helped create the problem. And the fact that we don't spend enough time working with people, counseling people, has made it harder to solve the problem. Okay, let's turn to something lighter. Each week, we make a recommendation meant to take your mind off of the news. Ross, this week is your turn. What do you have for us? I'm going to recommend one of the great masterpieces of modern literature, which I happen to be reading to my daughters right now, which is Richard Adams' novel, Watership Down, which is now amazingly almost 50 years old. It is a fantastic, fantastic feat of storytelling. And I find that a lot of really smart people, even though the book is very successful, are resistant to reading it because it's about rabbits. And it really is about rabbits. But it's really, really, really good. Do you think that the movie compares in any way? I mean, this is a total coincidence. But just the other day, I was saying to my husband that, oh, we should get that movie because I kind of vaguely remember it from my childhood, even though I don't remember much about it except for the rabbits. But yeah, is it the kind of thing where the movie gives you, you know, even a kind of a shadow of the of the book? So it's the kind of thing where I like it so much that I would never recommend that you see the movie if you haven't reread the book for 25 years. I haven't seen the Netflix adaptation. I think I saw the sort of wild 1970s adaptation a long time ago. Some people I trust have said that the Netflix adaptation is really good. I actually think that 
just from watching the previews, to me, there is something almost distracting about seeing the rabbits. Like, it's a little harder to <laughs> suspend your disbelief when you're watching them from outside versus when the novel is sort of fully inside their heads and cultures. But, you know, I read a lot of books to my kids, and it's a rare book where as I'm reading it, I'm rereading, I'm reading ahead, and then I'm rereading ahead, and I'm coming back to these scenes that I remember from the last time I read it 10 years ago. It's just a great feat of epic storytelling, which is kind of rare, I think, in contemporary literature. And Ross, what ages does it work for? So I'm reading it to an eight-and-a-half-year-old and a six-and-a-half-year-old, which I think a lot of people would say is a little young because it is, you know, it's nature red and tooth and claw, and it starts with the massacre of a warren of rabbits at the hands of human developers. Um, but they are generally loving it. And I think a kid 9 or 10 or 11 is sort of the, probably the perfect the perfect age for a kid. It's not a young adult novel. Like, it really is an all-ages novel. Okay, and once again, the title? Title is Watership Down by Richard Adams. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by Kristen Schwab for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, and Ian Prasad Philbrook. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. We will see you back here next week. Don't you really think it was my column recommending that one-week extension that did the trick, Michelle? <laughs> I mean, protests, fine. But what about me, Michelle? Well, welcome to the resistance, Ross Douthat.